0: Good morning. Enjoyed worshiping with you so far. Looking forward to a a great rest of the day. Did you uh, catch a whiff when the door opened up just a minute ago? Did you catch, catch a whiff of that charcoal out there burning? It smells so good. I got to go out there just uh, just a few minutes ago, and uh, uh, best I can tell, they're cooking and not going up and down the slides. Uh, right now, so uh, should looks like they're looks like they're doing what they should be. Um, if you have your Bible, open to Matthew, uh, open to Matthew 16, Matthew chapter 16, or turn on your phone or whatever you do to get to Matthew 16. But go to Matthew, uh, go to Matthew 16. That's where we'll be in uh, in just a few minutes, and I will promise not to go long because of the food. I will also promise not to go short because they threatened me not to. So uh, give them time enough to get ready to make sure everything is prepared before a line starts gathering. So uh, anyway, but I'm, um, I'm uh, looking forward to, uh, to today, to the message, looking forward to wrapping up our, our series in, in Matthew. Now, it's been an interesting year so far because we started off talking about the Gospel of Matthew. And we rocked along for several months. As a matter of fact, there were 20 messages that I preached from the Gospel of Matthew. And then toward the end of the summer, you know, we paused. And then I preached five weeks on a series about racism. And last Sunday, John Smith just did an outstanding job of wrapping that series up, did he not? And if, you've not, if you weren't here and you've not listened to the podcast, I encourage you to go do so. Listen to what John has to say because he just, he just kind of brought everything together that we'd been talking about for the previous month and a half or so, and uh, I really appreciated him doing that. And so now, where that leaves us is where we are today. And that is to talk about Matthew before we go on to something else. Now, before I tell you why we're going to wrap Matthew up today, I'll tell you about where we're going next week. Starting next Sunday, as Tim mentioned just a few minutes ago, we're beginning a new series in the book of Exodus. And everybody's familiar with the book of Exodus. Even people that don't go to church know at least something about this book. They've heard the name Moses. They're familiar with Pharaoh. Uh, they know about the Ten Plagues. You know, they know about the parting of the Red Sea, okay? It's a story that everybody is, is familiar with. And we're going to take six weeks, and we're going to, to look at that story. Now, part of the reason why we're doing that is, as, well, several of you know, you know, I'm at Lipscomb University in the Hazelip School of Theology, working on a Master's of Divinity degree, and part of that is we have to present certain things throughout throughout the year. And if you haven't figured it out, one of my classes is on the book of Exodus. You guys are so sharp. It's on the book of Exodus. Now, I could write six sermons and turn them in and then continue to preach something else, but... I have a book list that is like this big and it keeps growing and so it just seems to make more sense to me to preach what I'm writing. Does that make sense? You know, I don't know about you but I I, I sort of, the mantra I live by is work smarter not harder and so I'm just going to preach what I'm working on. Plus that, you know, that, that seems to me to say, okay, this justifies a little bit of those thousands of dollars that I'm spending at Lipscomb University. Because they get to manifest itself right here in the, in the life of the church. And that's part of the program anyway. The practicum part of this, this cohort that I am in is supposed to manifest itself here at Cornerstone. And so you're getting the benefit of what I am doing. And as I have said, if you saw my Facebook post, the discussion, the readings, the the things that we're talking about within, within the 19 of us that are together in the cohort, and then there's small groups of us, it is absolutely just rich, the discussion. And so I'm going to get to bring a lot of that discussion in here and, and share that with you. Um, uh, several other members of my, of my class are doing the same thing. And so we're getting to kind of journey through this together. And so that's, that's why we're beginning this new series on Exodus. Now then, it just happens to be that the first one that is due is next Saturday night at midnight. So guess what? Next Sunday morning at 10 o'clock, guess what you get? Sermon number one from Exodus. See how that works out? It's just amazing. What a coincidence that was. Now then, back to the Matthew thing. All right, we're a little over, well, we're about halfway through the book of Matthew. Now, it's impossible to preach the rest of the book of Matthew and get six weeks of series in on the book of Exodus, so today is going to be like the grand overview of the rest of the book of Matthew, okay? Now then, they told me not to go short, so I've got to really, you know, I'm not worried about going short. They also told me not to go long, so I've really got to move quick. To make sure we get this in. But what we want to talk about today is as we look at the, the rest of this book in a very brief fashion, it's not like we're going to go chapter by chapter, I'm just going to hit really two main, two main highlights of the book and we'll talk about them because I think they're very important. We're going to look at two different movements that take place within the book. And you see the, you see the title is called To the Cross and To the World. Because I think that's what you see in the last fourteen or so chapters of uh, uh, of this great book, and in, uh, you know we see some pretty interesting things. Now, if you'll remember, all the way back to January when we kicked this series off, I told you some things about the book, and I said there were three basic movements that you see that you see throughout this Gospel of Matthew. Okay, the first is the unveiling of Jesus, and that very simply is, hey, a Savior is born. You know, it's, the, it's the, the, the genealogy that lays out all of Jesus' family that goes way, way, way back into the Old Testament, touching on some of the characters that we might be talking about or at least peripheral to our, our study in Exodus. And so it lays out all of these people that Jesus is related to. okay. But then you have the birth narrative. We have the, the, the birth that changed the history of the world. When Jesus Christ, God, in the form of a baby, came to earth and tr- entrusted himself to human parents. Now, then, all of us that are human parents, you know, we'd, I think we probably do a pretty good job. Okay? I mean, our kids, you know, they looked pretty healthy this morning, right? Okay, yeah, amen, yeah, some of them looked a little more healthy. Uh, extra doses of energy, they might have all been sitting on my row, or, or at least the row my wife was sitting on. And so, you know, I think uh, for the most part, you know, we, we do a pretty good job of, uh, of raising our kids and, and making sure that they get what they need and have, you know, the things that, that they're supposed to have. But can you imagine what it was like to raise the Son of God? Now, some of our kids think they're God. But can you imagine what it was like to actually raise Jesus? I cannot imagine a more difficult task. I also cannot imagine a more difficult time to raise children than the time that, that Jesus did because of the political strife, because of the danger that was brought on to Israel by the, the, the Roman oppression. And so as you're reading these early Stories in the unveiling of Jesus. You have the, the genealogy, you have the, the birth narratives. But then as you move into chapter 3, you have something that is very, very significant, and that is the baptism of Jesus. Okay? And he is baptized. Okay? He's fulfilling Scripture, he's giving us an example of what we are to do. Okay? Everything that Jesus did is an example for us as his followers, right? Okay? He didn't do anything that, or let me me back up. He does not ask us to do anything that he didn't first do himself, okay? Which is the mark of a good leader, is it not? Okay? Everything that Jesus asks us to do, he's going to do himself. And we're going to get to one of those things in just a minute, and it's a big one. But in chapter 3, Jesus is baptized. Okay, and you have this great scene where he's, he's baptized, and you have... God speaking from heaven. This is my son. I'm pleased with what he's doing. Listen. You know, listen to this guy. Okay, and so you have that, that affirmation from the Father. But then also, what do you have happening at the same time? You have this dove descending, and it's the Holy Spirit. Okay, and so you have these two witnesses that are affirming the ministry of Jesus. Okay? Because to be a rabbi, you had to have two affirmations. Okay, and so here... There are not two greater affirmations in the world than you can have than God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And so as Jesus is baptized, you have God speaking from heaven. You have the Spirit descending from heaven in the, in the form of a dove. And it's right on the heels of that baptism that Jesus goes out into the wilderness and He's tempted by sin for 40 days. 40 days. And, and we, read, we know of at least three of them. Okay? And for 40 days, Jesus withstood temptation. For 40 days, He said no to basic essentials like like food. But He also turned down power. He turned down splendor. He turned down glory. He turned down the ability to overthrow those hated Romans. And to rescue his people, if he would just put his faith and his trust and his loyalty in Satan. But does nothing. You know, at the end of that, end of that encounter, it says that Satan left him until a more opportune time. You know, that's one of those phrases in, in, in scripture that when you read those things, you need to circle them, underlie them, do something because you know this is talking about something else. Okay, it is setting up, you know, it's a, it's a narrative device, a literary device that is setting up something that is going to happen later on down the road in the story. Okay, and so what it says, he left him until a more opportune time. That's, that's, a, that's a, uh, a note for us to sit up, pay attention, because something else is going to happen as we, as we move through this, this incredible story. So that's what happens in that first movement. You have, the, you have this unveiling Then you move into the second one. And it comes right on the heels of the temptation. But it's the public ministry and the public teaching of Jesus. The most famous sermon in the world, and you you should get this if you've been attending here anyway, because we spent several weeks talking about it, but the most famous sermon in the world is what? The Sermon on the Mount. Okay, And that's what we read about, or at least the way Matthew structures his gospel, that as he begins his ministry, we read about the Sermon on the Mount, and it's in that sermon. Do you remember how practical it was? Do you remember how good the advice is? Do you remember how tough it was to try to actually live those things out? It wasn't easy, but you and I both know that the call of Jesus is never easy, is it? Jesus doesn't call us to an easy life. As a matter of fact, when Jesus calls us, as, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Jesus bids I really need to say this because it's going to go better with something I'm going to say later, but I'll say it now since I've already tipped my hand. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, when Jesus bids us come and follow, he bids us come and die. Now then we'll come back to that. So you have this teaching. You have this, this sermon on the mount where Jesus is laying out what it looks like to be one of his followers, what it looks like to love enemies, what it looks like to be honest with one another, what it looks like to have these different attitudes that we, we put in place in our lives that help us to look more Christ-like. But then after that, you go through this, these chapters and you have all these healings You have all these miracles that take place that that substantiate some of the teachings that he's saying, that substantiate his claim that he is the Son of God. Okay, And he performs things like like feeding thousands of people. Okay, Because one thing about Jesus was is that in order to connect with people, he didn't just start preaching at them. He met their needs first. And that's that's an important thing. That's an important note for us, is it not? That if we're going to connect with people, if we're going to be the people of Jesus, a lot of times the first thing we have to do is not preach at somebody, not tell them how lost they are, not tell them what a a terrible sinner they are, but to extend a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus, to offer a, a meal, to help somebody move, do the things that, that, that Jesus did. and That's how He connected. But as you're reading in that, that second movement in, in Matthew and His ministry and His teaching, you see Him meeting the needs of people. Whether it was things like hunger or whether you had people who were blind or servants that were, were, were very sick. Deaf ears were opened. Muted tongues were released to speak. Jesus does all of these things. Then you get into chapter 13, and it's you know, a really good title for that chapter is just parables of the kingdom. You, know, you remember what those parables did. They served to... The, the basic thing is it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, but you know, they, also, they also revealed truth to those who really wanted it. But to those who refused to accept who Jesus was, it also hid the truth. Because hearing, they didn't hear. They didn't perceive what what Jesus was trying to say because they could not accept that this was the Son of God. Because the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they thought if anybody's going to recognize the Son of God, it's going to be us. If God's going to tell anybody about His arrival, it's going to be us. But you know what? He didn't. The first people to find out about Jesus were probably the smelliest people around. They hung out with sheep. Have you ever smelled a sheep? I don't recommend it. You ever touched a sheep? They're kind of greasy. Okay, they have this oil. I think it's called lanolin. And they smell bad. But yet it's those people, those, those shepherds, those, those humble, lowly people. Those are the first people who find out, not only find out about the birth of Jesus, they're the first people to preach about the birth of Jesus. They're the first people to proclaim him. And so that's what you have happening. You get into 14 and you have all these parables where Jesus is, is revealing things about the kingdom of heaven and he talks about the sowers and all of these, these different things. He talks about having a, a prepared heart. That's how we, you know, our, our heart, remember a few weeks ago as we talked about having that prepared heart and we talked about the soils and there's the different kinds of soils and really what they represent is the condition of our hearts. Okay? And we don't want to have a, a, a hard exterior because then the word can't get there. We don't want to have a, a shallow faith. You know, you ever had, you know, yeah, I get excited about Jesus? Woo-hoo. and then something happens and your faith gets tested or people start to ridicule you for it and all of a sudden, boy, you uh, oh, well, yeah. Yeah, you know, I believe in Jesus, but I also believe in other things. Yeah, I go to church, but I do other things too, you know, and, and, and that faith begins to wither, okay? But we have to have that deep soil, that soil that's prepared, that's ready to, to, receive the word of God. And then finally, you have the last movement. That's just kind of where we want to pick up between these movements today, and it's the journey to Jerusalem. And this one is, is, is very important. <clears throat> in the journey to Jerusalem, you know, in this section, this, this last bit, 16 through 28, you, you see some other miracles that Jesus performs. You, you have some more of his teachings, especially as you get into to Matthew 25, and he starts talking about, about some, some pretty interesting things. You have the, the triumphal entry, which takes place on Palm Sunday, where Jesus is, is brought into town and people are just worshiping Him. They're saying, Hosanna in the highest, and they're spreading palm branches and cloaks and things like that on the road for Him to, to, walk, uh, to, 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 to ride across as He rides in, not on a horse, but on what? You remember? On a donkey. Yeah, you know the significance of a donkey. Kings, during this time, they'd ride one of two animals. Okay? During times of war, they'd ride in on a war horse. And you knew that you were at war when you saw the king on his horse. But, during times of peace, a king would ride in on a donkey. You see, as Jesus is riding in on that donkey on that triumphal entry, he is making a very loud statement that I am King Jesus, but I come bringing peace. You know, he's going to say some things like that during the end of the week. He's going to weep over Jerusalem by the end of the week, and he's going to say, you know how how I long to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you wouldn't listen. And it says that the people, they missed the time of the visitation of Jesus. I don't know if there's any sadder words written in Scripture than all of that. I know I don't want those words written about me. What about you? Do you want it to be said as you stand before God, you missed. You missed the time of the invitation. You missed the advent of Jesus. His his coming. Well, it goes on. You read more in this in this section, and you have the betrayal of Judas. And we know what that is. He agrees and there's a blood price paid and he arranges a signal and he goes and he turns Jesus over where he is arrested, where he's run through a a series of trials that half of them shouldn't have even happened because they happened at times when they were not supposed to be having trials and so they're illegal and shuffled back and forth between Pilate and between... Herod, and it's just kind of a mockery of the whole thing, but they finally come down and Jesus is going to be crucified, even though Pilate doesn't want to crucify him. But he's crucified. And he hangs on a cross and he takes the sin of all of mankind. He takes my sin, he takes your sin, he takes the sins of those that you love, sins of those that you have trouble loving, sins of people you've met before, sins of people you've never met before. But he takes the sin of all the world upon himself and and he experiences the wrath of God. He experiences something that hopefully none of us will ever experience and that is the forsaking of God. All so that you and I can go to heaven all and more than that all so that we can be brought into the kingdom of god because i don't want to say just heaven because that means we leave out a lot of stuff between here and there and that also makes it sound like none of this stuff between now and then matters but he brings us into the kingdom of god and he includes us into the mission where we listen to the teachings of our master teacher jesus where we rely on the Holy Spirit that indwells each and every believer and is our guide and our counselor and our comforter. And we're to manifest those things in our life as we interact with one another and we interact with people. But that's the movements that sort of take place. That's the big movements that you see happening in the book of Matthew. Now then, for just a few minutes, I want to look at two verses as we talk about to the cross. And that's where we pick up in in John, um, excuse me, in, in Matthew chapter sixteen. Matthew sixteen twenty one says this, and you have these you have these literary things like this in the book. You see one, you see one at four seventeen. From then on, Jesus began to teach. You also see one right here. Matthew sixteen twenty one says, "From then on," and that's that, 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 that's an indicator. There's something else. All right, there's a shift that's happening in the story. From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and the scribes and be killed and raised on the third day. Now then, this comes right on the heels of Peter's great confession. Who do people say that I am? Some say John the Baptist... Elijah, one of the other prophets. Jesus turns it back. He says, "No, no, I don't care what everybody else says. What do you say? Who do you say that I am?" Peter says, "You're Jesus. You're Christ. You're the Son of the Living God." Jesus blesses him. He says, "Hey, you're blessed for that." And based on that confession, this is what I'm going to build my church on. Peter. You're the rock, but that's not the rock I'm going to build the church on. The rock is Jesus Christ as the son of the living God. And that's what I'm going to build my church on. Peter has this incredible moment. And then Jesus says, hey, oh, by the way, I'm thinking to go die. And Peter, after this great shining moment, pulls Jesus aside and actually has the audacity to correct him. Can you imagine? Whoa, Jesus, that's not right. That's not the story. Our story is you get rid of the Romans. Our story is you release us from physical oppression. Our story is you become the king. And by the way, you can set us up as little sub-kings to help you rule this place. And that remark earns Peter the sharpest rebuke that Jesus ever laid out in Scripture. Get behind me, say it with me. Satan. Ooh, that's hard. But you don't understand. You have in mind the things of men. You don't understand the things of God. You don't understand the big, you don't understand the big picture here. But it's in that moment, in the, in, in the middle of chapter 16, where it says, Jesus then began to point out to his disciples. It's from that point forward, as you read the book, you realize, and there's some sort of Um, location markers along the way. But you realize that Jesus is now heading toward Jerusalem. Physically, He is working His way there anticipating what is going to happen. That He is going to be crucified. And then He says this, If anyone wants to become My follower, Let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. So, in the words of Randy Harris, the apostles who thought they were on the pleasure ship just found out they're on the death boat. Wait a minute, what did you say? You're going to die and we've got to die too? You're supposed to be the king. We're supposed to help you out. We're supposed to help you run things. What's going on here? Jesus says, no, no, no. If you're going to follow me, you're going to do exactly what I do. Luke, when he talks about this passage, he adds one little word in there that sort of helps us get a little bit more meaning. He says, take up your cross daily and follow me and with that one little word that one little insertion of the word daily it moves this from martyrdom into discipleship you see that now then that doesn't mean that it might not mean somebody could be martyred for jesus because we know that that happened we know that that happened to just about all of jesus followers at least the early ones But he says, take up your cross and and follow me. And this this is what Bonhoeffer is talking about. When Jesus bids a person come and follow, he bids them come and die. Come and die to yourself. Come and die to your selfish ambitions. Come and die to it being all about you. Okay, try a different way of living because the selfish life doesn't work and it hasn't worked. Come and follow me. Come take my yoke upon you and learn me for I am gentle and humble and hard and you will find rest for your souls come and take up your cross daily and follow me serve people love people bless people be compassionate upon the people that you you come across and so that's what's That's what's going on as Jesus begins to head, as He begins to head to the cross. Now then, Matthew 28, and it'll be on the screen or you can flip there. Matthew 28, Jesus has, uh, you know, everything, all the major things have happened. He's been crucified. He's been resurrected. He's been appearing to His disciples for a certain number of days. He's he's getting ready to leave them for good. Uh, We don't read about that until you get into the opening about eight, ten verses of of the book of Acts. But in in Matthew 28, Jesus is with his disciples. He has already gone to the cross. He's already told them, if you're going to follow me, you have to go to the cross. But now he's going to show them something else. He's going to say, you have to go to the world as well. Then Jesus came near and he said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of who all nations not just the people you like not just the people that look like you not just the people that you think deserve to go to heaven not just the people that you think deserve to be blessed by Jesus Christ and get to participate in the advancement of the kingdom but you go into all the world, and you make disciples of anybody you come across. And he sort of lays out the pattern. baptizing them in the name, and you read this, this triune, you read about the Triune God here. You baptize them in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit. You know, that's sort of been called the, the marching orders followers of Jesus. We, we also know of it as the, uh, the Great Commission where Jesus sends forth where He sends forth His disciples. So He calls us to, to two things. In the last portion of this book, really the, the last half, we see that, that Jesus, the, the, the main movement that we've looked at is Jesus is going to start going toward the cross. He's going to give up His life. He's going to die. But not only that, He's taken us with Him. Do you think maybe that's why Jesus talked about having a prepared heart before He told him that little secret? You know? What kind of heart do you need to have? You need to have a heart that's soft like the soil Prepared to receive the word. You don't need to have a shallow faith because if you're going to follow me and you have a shallow faith, you're not going to make it. And Jesus knew what he was doing, didn't he? And so he says, I'm going to the cross. And if you're going to follow me, then you're going to the cross with me. It might be an actual cross. And for some of the disciples, it actually was a cross. You know, traditionally, we understand that Peter was crucified as well. But didn't feel worthy to be crucified in the same manner that Jesus was crucified in. So he requested inverted crucifixion, upside down. Others were beheaded. far as we know, only one, John, didn't meet, as we might say, or others might say, a sticky end. He would go on to write some more things. He would would write the uh, the apocalypse, the unveiling, the revelation that gives us this incredible glimpse of, of, of heaven. Talks about the reuniting of God's people in the tree of life that we've been banished from for so long in the garden. But when we come back and Jesus calls us home, we get to be around the tree of life in heaven where there is no night where the gates are not locked because Satan is not trying to get in. But before then, Jesus calls us. And so the point that that I want to make is very simply this. As followers of Jesus, we must take up and we must go into the world with the gospel. That's our call. If you are going to call yourself a follower of Jesus, then this is what it entails. It means that you are willing to take up your cross. It means that you are willing to follow Jesus wherever that may lead. And that doesn't always lead to good places. Now, sometimes it does. But there are other times where it absolutely does not. It leads to some very, very difficult places. But Jesus calls us to two places. He calls us to the cross, and He calls us into the world with His message. And if we are going to be the followers of Christ, that's what He calls us to. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the day you've given us. Thank you for this time that we've had to look at a big, large, sweeping section of your Word. God, I pray that we've gained understanding from it. I pray that anything that I've said that might distract God, it would just fall off the ears of those that have heard it. And that the important things will get through. will penetrate our minds and penetrate our hearts and our spirits. Father, I pray that you will help us to recognize the call of Jesus. That you'll help us to recognize that he is calling us to bear a cross. That he is calling us to go into the world with the message of the cross for the sake of those who do not know you. Father help us in that because it's not an easy mission. Help us to bear that cross because it's not an easy one to bear. But we know that it is the power of Christ that compels us. And so we want to open ourselves and submit ourselves to that and to your rule and to your reign in our life. We want to ask for manifestations of the fruits of the spirit in our life. Father, we want to ask We want to ask for more indwelling of your spirit. as we engage the lost and the broken world. Thank you for your love, Lord. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that we pray and all together say, Amen.